Hey, everybody. It's Maddie C. Welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. It is really wonderful to have you here. What did David Bowie, Prince, and a jock from Dayton, Ohio have in common? A lot more than you might think. I talk about all of that and more with film producer, music obsessive, and the author of Secret Stars, Matt Berenson. Let's get into it. everybody, welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. It is me, your pal, your host, uh, your fearless leader. Actually, I'm a very fearful leader. Don't ever let it be said I'm a fearless leader. I'm filled with fear and anxiety. If you don't know that by now, you've not been paying attention low all of these months while we've been working and slaving away over here at What Am I Making. Um, things are good, man. It's... Uh, it's it's been a, a really busy time. I mean, I know I say that every time, but it's really, really true. I can't believe the amount of work that I'm uh I feel like I'm cranking out. And there's so much stuff that I'm doing that's kind of waiting to be unveiled, which I'm super excited about. And I only have to wait a few days now to to kind of share that with you. So there's a little tease. Uh big update on the uh summer tour. Hey, uh the big update is you need to buy some tickets. Uh I am headed out in just a couple of weeks. This thing begins. Um, on June 29th at Horrocks uh, Beer Garden and Farm Market here in beautiful Lansing, Michigan. And then from there, I go across uh, a whole bunch of states, a couple dates left to fill. But the big thing right now that you could do to help is to go to phonoforrecords.com slash house shows and buy some tickets. Get on there, find the place where I'm going to be near you. And buy some tickets, buy some merch ahead of time. It helps me not only um, feel really excited and good knowing that some tickets are moving, and that's and that's really helpful. We've had a few orders already, and that's I got to tell you that helps me sleep at night. So if you're out there and you've been thinking about buying tickets, you might want to help. You buy them now, you'll help Medici sleep. That would be really appreciated. Uh, the other thing is it really helps to fund the tour. Um, there are a lot of costs that happen that that I've got to pay for before I ever leave. And as I've shared with you on more than one occasion, part of the process here is for me to earn part of my living doing this and for me to have the courage to go out there and to try to sell tickets and to ask you for your support. So um, if you are interested in this and you enjoy what I do, and especially if you're a fan of my music, um, buy some tickets. Uh, I will be out there. They're very reasonable. I can also promise you that the fees are going to be almost non-existent compared to a lot of the large summer shows you're going to be going to. Um, speaking of which, I had quite the experience with uh, some dear friends of mine on uh, this past Sunday night. We drove down to Cleveland, which is about four hours-ish from where I live, and that's a whole long story, but it involves... Uh, registering for tickets and the cure trying to keep people from scalping and a whole bunch of things. And we wound up going to Cleveland instead of the show a couple of nights later in Detroit. Anyway, we had an amazing time at the show, but there was a ton of rain and some thunder and lightning. And more than once, it looked like the show was going to get canceled. 
And but anyway, I, I bring this up because uh, it was it was a reminder of how expensive it is to go to these big shows. Um, the tickets themselves were very reasonable because the Cure fought really hard to do that. Uh, but even still, the I think the lawn seats were twenty five bucks, which was a steal in this day and age. And the fees on those were supposed to be five dollars, and Ticketmaster tried to get away with charging twelve or thirteen or fifteen dollars, and eventually the Cure was able to sort of threaten a suit and get a little bit of that money back for their consumers, and kind of hold Ticketmaster's feet to the fire. But nonetheless, I mean, I paid. Uh, let's see, I went to the show, and I bought two beers—not beers I want to drink, but beers that were available to me. Two very large cans of, of Budweiser. Um, I bought two beers and two pretzels and it was $40. Uh, so then I bought some popcorn later and a soda and that was $18. So that's 58 bucks. And then we got my, you know, we'll call it $35 for my ticket, you know? So I, I really haven't gotten very much stuff and I've spent way over a hundred dollars. Um, most of the tickets on the the tour that I am going on are twenty bucks, and I feel a little sheepish about charging that much. But this is this is what I have to do to try to make this work. The goal is to try to sell twenty tickets at twenty bucks on average every night. That's a four hundred dollar take. I know it's not a lot of money, but I also know that it's it's a lot of money for people who've been out playing shows for a really long time. And I'm going to have nights where I don't sell twenty tickets, and I'm going to have nights where I hopefully sell more than 20 tickets. If I'm coming to your town and you're interested in this, you could help me get to that that goal. That would be amazing. Um, let me switch some gears. As I mentioned, things have been really busy. Uh, I put stuff up almost every day last week. I think, in fact, I did put stuff up every day last week, uh, the first week of June. And it's been, it's been a really fun little run for me. I've been able to kind of unveil some personal stuff. I've been able to talk about some music I've been working on. Um, I was able to start a new series this week called uh, The Shedio Sessions, where I'm going to be telling stories behind my songs and playing stripped-down versions of them uh, here and recording them live in the in the Shedio and then sharing them with you. Um, the first one I did uh, was done both as a written essay and then there's a, a podcast version, so you can go over to the, the Substack. It is its own independent pod feed. So make sure that you go over and you sign up for that. If you're getting this pod like in Apple or Spotify or Stitcher, you're going to need to search for Shedio Sessions. Or you can just click on Matty C and his ADHD in the creator name, like under the name of the the, the show um, creator. So where it says, uh, what am I making? And then underneath that, like on Apple, it'll say, Maddie C and his ADHD, and that, that should be a hyperlink, and you can click that, and it will open up and take you to other shows that I produce, and there will now be one in there for Shedio Sessions. So make sure you are subscribing and you're signing up for that. Um, these are shorter episodes. That first one was like 16 minutes, and I think we're going to try to keep them 15 to 20 if I can. I'm going to be doing some fun stuff with that. That's going to become a, a semi-regular thing, and then there's just some other sort of regular stuff I've been doing at the pod. I, I published a a thing um, this week where I did sort of a follow-up to the Don't Make It Political piece that I posted in early June. And there is a song and a video with that. And there's some uh, some 
additional <laughs> storytelling behind it that I won't bore you with on the pod, but make sure you're going over there and checking it out. Again, if you're not if you're not paying attention to what's going on over there and you you just know about the Substack, that's okay. Or excuse me, you just know about the podcast, that's okay. But you should know about the Substack. It's whatamimaking.substack.com. Um, I publish video, uh, these podcasts, and I publish a bunch of written work. And um, occasionally you'll get to hear some of my songs or see some some visual stuff that I'm doing in terms of my design or whatever. And there's there's stuff in there about music. You get it. You get it. You've been here long enough. You know what's going on. Uh, I shan't bore you anymore. Go over there and uh, find find uh, find something that, that uh, tickles your fancy or what whatever. I don't know. Um, I that went that went way off the rails. My apologies. We'll we'll steer this back onto the track. Um, when you go over there to the what am I making substack.com, that's that's my substack we were just talking about. You you can sign up for free and you can get all of this stuff delivered to your inbox every time I post something new. And if you're getting too many emails, which a couple of you have mentioned to me, you can go in and you can actually uh, take a look at your settings in your Substack uh, account in your subscription information, and you can decide how often or if at all you want to get emails from me. So if an email every time I post something is a little too much, feel free to just jump in there and kind of tweak that and go, I only want emails from these feeds, or I only want emails, you know, a certain amount of time uh, a week, that kind of thing. Um, if you sign up for a free subscription, or if you've been signing up for a free subscription and you've been enjoying what I've been doing, Boy, it sure would mean a lot if you would sign up for a paid subscription. I'm going to be really candid with you. I've been doing this thing for four months. And for the first, you know, six weeks of that or so, I really wasn't even mentioning much how much I, I need the the sort of the paid support. And I've really kind of poured that on here in the second half of the existence of this, of this thing here. You know, maybe since the uh, beginning, middle of April. And... um. And I could really use your your paid support. It's how it's how I can make this thing possible. It's how I can donate, donate. It's how I can, it's how I can sort of justify uh, the time that I devote to this, that I'm spending on this project. And it's it's really important work to me. And I think it's I think it's important work to you because I'm hearing from a lot of you. But for that work to continue and to continue to reach people and to continue to be important to more and more folks, I need to be able to do it with some degree of regularity, and that means making some degree of income from it. So right now, as of this recording today, on June 13th, uh, I have 30 paid subscribers. And the first thing I want to do is I want to thank each and every one of you from the bottom of my heart. You are helping make a dream come true, and it means the world to me to have your attention, your time, your kindness, your generosity, and your dollars. Uh, please don't ever think that as I sit here and continue to ask again and again and again for people to give that I'm ever taking for granted what people have already done for me. Thank you. It means so much. It it validates what I'm doing and it makes me have more belief in myself and the things that I'm trying to talk about. So I want to take a quick minute today. Again, I've got 30 of these paid subscribers. I want to just really quickly mention five of them. And I, and I sort of semi-pulled these people out at random. And then one person I put in on purpose because uh, I want to give him an extra special thank you. But um, the first four subscribers I want to thank, um, and we're going to continue to do this, especially as people join. I want to I welcome new folks, but I also want to catch up by mentioning by name everybody who has already supported the pod with a subscription. Although 
a couple of you have done it through uh, anonymous means or have just used an email that is impossible by which to identify you. So if you want to be identified and I don't mention your name and you are already a paid subscriber, hit me up with a note. So here are the first five paid subscribers of What Am I Making that I want to mention on a, on the show to say thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you to Dan Terex. Thanks, Danny. Thanks to Dean Gibbs, to Mindy Cunningham, to my friend Cassie Rice out in Nevada, and most especially to, I think he was the first person who signed up, and uh, he is... Uh, a founding member, which is an incredibly generous thing. That is where you give me $300 a year to help me try to uh, accomplish something important here and kind of, like I said, build a dream. And you can join for as little as 6 bucks a month. You can do it for uh, 60 bucks a year. You can be a $300 founding member. There are, are also some other options for you to donate. You can donate through my Venmo or PayPal. The other thing that you can do is I'm now working with a new... Uh, a new app called Ko-Fi, where you can actually make a contribution to the show, and 100% of that money comes to me. They don't even take out any fees. Uh, it's really kind of a great deal, and I'm just kind of starting to understand how it works and just getting to use it, but you'll see those links as I put out articles. You'll see buttons on each of the uh, on each of the show notes and in all the essays that I post, and you'll see an option there. So if you're already a paid subscriber and you feel like, hey, I want to throw Maddie a little more money... Or I want to donate and maybe say, hey, work on this thing. Or, you know, I really like that you were doing this and you want to send me a little encouragement. And maybe you want to buy me a coffee or a, you know, six pack of beer or something. That's that's a really, really lovely way to kind of do something nice, even if it's small. If you want to give me some sort of angel investment, I'll take that too. But uh, make sure you're keeping an eye out. And I will put the, the Ko-Fi stuff in the show notes here. So again, I want to say thanks again to Danny Tarek, Dean Gibbs, Mindy Cunningham, Cassie Rice, and Dr. Barry Hummel, and um, <clears throat> and all of you for, for your support and your kindness. Please make sure that you are liking, rating, and reviewing the pod wherever you get it. It's really easy to do that, but it's super important to help us grow the audience for the show. It's amazing what a difference it makes. Um, something as simple as a handful of reviews over a brief period of time can really kind of spike the algorithm, and it's it's amazing what, what, uh, what a difference that can make. Um, don't forget, you can actually leave me a, uh, a good old-fashioned voice message over at speakpipe.com slash what am I making. I'm going to end the show today with another one of these messages, this time from my, my pal Aaron out in Washington. And so make sure you stick around for that. Ooh, I said the thing, fellas. Uh, that's a little nod to my bandmates. Uh, super nerdy dad rock stuff. Um, again, go over to speakpipe.com slash what am I making? You can leave me a voicemail. You can tell me that you liked or didn't like something on the show. You can recommend a guest. You can tell me someplace that you think I should be a guest. You can pitch yourself as a possible guest. You can tell me about a record or a film or a book you love. You can tell me what you're making. My friend Taffy uh, in uh, Kingston, New York, sent me a uh, Facebook post a day or two ago and said, hey, Maddie C., here's what I'm making. And it was like this massive... Uh, stone table of uh, sourdough loaves, and it it uh, it it made me salivate, and it revved up the carb engine that lives inside my pudgy little frame. Um, so again, let me know what you're making. Go over to speakpipe.com/slash what am I making? Leave me a message. Let's get on with the show, shall we? So, 
When uh, when my longtime friend and musical Sherpa Todd Stonehouse handed me his copy of Secret Stars, the greatest underdogs of the rock and roll era, he just grinned and he said, man, you're going to love this. And just looking at the 10 bands listed on the cover, I knew I had found one of my new sacred texts. Inside that blazing red cover lay chapters on Nick Drake, Robin Hitchcock, Elliot Smith, Big Star, and other bands I just loved. These were my secret stars, too. I'd not only found somebody writing about these bands in any way at all, I had found somebody writing about them as the ought-to-be pop gods I knew they were. While Matt Berenson has had a long career as a film producer, it makes total sense that he and I would connect over his writing on music. Specifically, his writing on genius that never quite gets its proper due. And as I dragged my copy of Secret Stars across the Moroccan countryside this winter, each chapter felt like another piece of evidence as to why this guy, this Matt Berenson dude, and I should be hanging out. We should be friends and we should be talking about cool shit. So that was essentially what I wanted my chat with Matt Berenson to be like for this show. I wanted to cap- capture the exuberance of sharing a new band with a friend, of, of finding a new musical soulmate, of unveiling those secret stars and helping them to burn a shade brighter by sharing them with each other. Inside our chat today, you're going to get to hear Matty C and Matty B. I, pr- I promise I won't do that again, by the way. You'll hear us explain the four P's of rock and roll. We're going to discuss doubling down on the stuff that we dig and how that leads to really magical shit. Oh, Taylor Swift gets a mention for at least the second week in a row. Get ready for that Matty C bump there, Swifty. And we even talk about why Van Halen still rules. This conversation was so fantastic, in fact, I I needed to split it into two chunks. And it worked out really beautifully. In this first section, in today's episode, we're going to dive deep into Matt's book. And we're going to talk about some of his and some of our favorite secret stars. And then in the next episode, we'll talk a bunch about Matt's career in film, the current state of cinema, and how much it sadly has in common with the music industry and why streaming is changing everything for creators everywhere. So let's dive in with a couple of nerds obsessing over obscure discoveries, indie rock demigods, and why Tom Waits has the perfect celebrity lifestyle. Of course, we kick things off with me noticing Matt's Guided by Voices t-shirt, and the GBV cult love begins. Here we go. Uh, Excellent shirt. (laughs) Thanks. I knew you'd notice. Um, Yeah, I I don't have that one, but I am uh, proud slash ashamed to say that I, I do have like three others, so... Yeah, I, <laughs> as you can imagine, <laughs> the um, the nerdery with that 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 particular cult runs runs hot, doesn't it? It it sure does. Uh, you know, a lot of bands have cult followings, even bigger cult followings than Guided by Voices. I mean, there are your Fishheads and oh, sure. you know, all kinds of hardcore fans of other bands, but there's something very specific and um, uh, right on my wavelength about not only guided by voices music, but their fans and their, and their following and their, 
you know, heed fest music festival here and in Europe that most people have never heard of, but every guided by voices fan knows about. <laughs> and some of us, and some of us have still never been able to attend. Me neither. Uh, and, uh, yeah. um, and, and actually as we're recording this, uh, did you get the email that today they announced their 40th anniversary celebration? I sure did. I've actually already sent it out to a bunch of people and said, should we all meet in Dayton in September? Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I just got an email or a, a text thread from my bandmates in the stick arounds and they were all like, um, we might want to make a pilgrimage. So I don't know. I don't know how it, it will probably wind up being impossible to get tickets, but I think we will make a concerted effort to see if we can make it happen. Yeah. Um, what, what is it about, what do you think that wavelength is that you sort of locked into with that group, whether it's the people making that music or the people sort of having that cult-like following, what is it, whether it's GBV or another one of those examples like that, what do you think that wavelength is that you lock into? Well, there's two different answers. I think the question you're asking is about the, the wavelength of the fans of this band, but I guess let me start by talking about sort of, it, it all starts with the music for the, for the fans, of course. And, you know, there's something, you, you know, I've been a music obsessive since I was probably 13 or so. You know, I think YouTube Boy was the first record I listened to just over and over and over again. And I've had, you know, my ups and downs with that band since then, but I still, you know, Haven't always, we all. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they've had some highs and some, some lows. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, I was surprised in my like adult life in my 20s, you know, to hear B-1000. I think that was the first record of theirs I heard. I'm almost sure it was. And I was probably, well, I can tell you exactly. I was 26 years old, you know, at the time. And it just like scratched an itch that that almost nothing else, you know, uh, ever has. And I didn't get obsessed right away. I certainly started buying everything and going to their shows. And and once you go to their shows, my God, I mean, even when Bob was drinking like a madman on stage and falling off the stage by the end of the show, it's, you know, some of the best times I've ever had in my life for a Guided by Voices concert. So, so that's part of it. But the music is such an amalgamation of everything that guy loves. It's like the Who and R.E.M. and the Beatles and then post-punk stuff like Wire and The Fall. And not it's, really it's Wire, like watching but... it's like watching somebody who's like a savant just sort of regurgitate his interpretation of his record collection back to you. Absolutely. And and that's exactly right. And he's got an incredible record collection, by the way. I don't know if you saw oh, during yeah. the pandemic. Yeah, he did some live, you know, broadcasting from his record room. And it was just like, whoa, this guy's serious. I mean, he's been collecting for a long time and has an unbelievable collection. And it's it's the way he synthesizes his influences, though. There are only two other artists, you know, who I wouldn't necessarily put Bob quite on their level, and I'm not sure he would either, but David Bowie and Prince are the other ones who are such an interesting synthesis of a lot of different things so that they don't even really sound like this. They sound a little bit like this and a little bit like that, but they kind of become their own thing. And and that's a really exciting thing for me in all three of those cases. And then I think all three of those cases, those are those are all artists that are kind of continually evolving. 
So even if they wind up coming back to a spot where they've been before, it's never the same version. So yep. even when Bob reconnects uh, a lineup together, it's never it's never going to be the exact same thing it was before. So the quote unquote classic lineup when they get back together in the you know what is it like two thousand nine two thousand ten or whatever, that's not going to be like what it was like fifteen years earlier. Yeah. And, um, and so uh, to me, that's really fascinating that he's kind of always like, it's almost as if he's always exploring this again, let's use the record collection, the anthology or analogy. And he's like pulling a record out and going, all right, let's do uh, this. But then he's going to do it with these people. And it's going to sound different than the last time he tried to make a record that sounded like the who. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and it's, it's, it's really, you know, like a, another weird example of how he synthesizes things in just the case of a specific song is, you know, people who are fans of the band will know the song Hot Freaks from B-1000. And it's like, I think actually Tobin Sprout wrote the music for that and he wrote the lyrics. So that's, this isn't a great example, but it's like he was riffing on a specific lyric from a King Crimson song. Like, you know, these Peter Sinfield lyrics that he loved from a you know, King Crimson song that like no one knows, <laughs> you know, and coming and doing his own version of it against the backdrop of Toby's cool bass line. I mean, he's just constantly he, he he is some kind of savant, but he's not, you know, according to everyone who knows him. And I've only met him once, but. You know, he's not like on the spectrum or anything. That was the first thing I asked when I met people who knew him. I'm like, is he like, you know, Asperger's? Is he like on the spectrum? Nope. You know, not, but you would almost think he would be because I oh, don't my God, else. he's so like outgoing and gregarious in person. Yeah. I mean, and I've never like spent a great deal of time with him, but I mean, I've run into him on two or three occasions and once had like a genuine conversation. He's just, he's really funny. And like you, he seems much more in person. And I don't mean this in like the, the pejorative way. He seems much more like kind of like the affable jock than he does, yeah. than he does kind of like this indie rock guy. Well, you know, for for any of your listeners who don't know, I mean, he is that too. He was a triple varsity athlete in high school. He pitched a perfect game in college. I mean, the guy was an incredible athlete. And by his own account, his younger brother, uh, uh, Jimmy, was an even better athlete. Um, So, you know, that's that's the other. There's so many fascinating things about his story you know, which is one of the many reasons I wanted to write about him in my book. In fact, in many ways, he inspired me to to find my way to the concept of my book. And he was sort of the first guy on my list. Um, Interesting. And what? OK, so that was that. that's a great sort of fold into that. What do you what kind of DNA do you think, say, you know, Bob Pollard shares with, say, an Elliot Smith or a Robin Hitchcock? I mean, a couple of other people who I genuinely admire and, and really kind of look up to that are also mentioned in secret stars I mean, what, because they're clearly different artists, but I think there is some overlap. Um, the first thing that comes to me is that again, that sort of obsessive nature. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, one of the things I discovered once I had narrowed down my list of songwriters and bands and tried to really identify who are the 10 that are the right combination of, I love them the most and or they're, you know, the most overlooked relative to their talent, Um, you know, and then of course it was important to me that they had a great story. And as I was researching them all and working on the chapters and rewriting the chapters, I discovered all these things that so many of them had in common. And certainly I would say 
you know, yeah, you're right on the money in the case of Elliot Smith and Bob, you know, both uh, obsessives. You know, I think a lot of them probably are, you know, are obsessed to one degree or another with, with you know, particular music or, um, but, you know, like Elliot Smith, people would be surprised to know uh, if they're not, you know, if they don't already know that he was like obsessed with Rush in high school. He was a big Beatles fan, which you'd guess, but like Rush was his total obsession, you know, in, in, in high school. And it's, and he liked uh, Elliot, like Bob um, had a real kind of like, flair for prog rock like really yes. kind of appreciated like sort of weirdo you know whether it was like you know emerson lake and palmer or early king crimson or a lot of that you know even like sort of the proggy or genesis stuff i know that elliot smith was yes. a fan of that um and so uh you know what is it rock uh bob even says that rock and roll is just the four p's there's pop punk psych and prog yep <laughs> yes now uh he he uh, he doesn't include classic rock in that, which is kind of ironic because I think there's a big classic rock component in in uh, you know in, in in his music as well. But I love the four P's and the whole concept of that. And as you know, in my in my book, I talk about the fifth P being Pollard, um, you know, <laughs> which I actually stole from my friend Jeff Gomez, who does the uh, Guided by Voices podcast. Um, uh, he, he came up with that, which I thought was very clever. And it's kind of true. He, it's he, a great line. Yeah, it, it is. It's so, so true. But, but yeah, these guys look they're they're, you know, they work really hard at it. They, you know, anybody who, who has probably ever made a great album, like it doesn't happen by accident. You, you know, you, you were, and you know, this as a songwriter and musician, it's like, you learn how to play your instrument. You listen to a lot of records you learn how to write a song. The first song you write is probably not any good. The first 20 songs you write might not be any good, but the more you work at it, the more, you know, it's a little bit the 10,000 hours thing, which I only partially subscribe to, but it's, yeah. Yeah, I'm right there with you. And and I also think there's the, you probably have heard it before and I'll paraphrase it poorly, but there's the Ira Glass thing about like the difference between you and the work other people are going to do is your taste. And that's yeah. that you're both going to start at the same place and you're both going to get better. And the difference is you're not going to stop until you get to a certain place because you know what you're shooting for. Yeah. And so I think with, with some of these quote unquote obsessives that, that you and I are talking about, you know, most of the people that I sort of run in circles with, whether they ever achieve any degree of commercial success or not, they're all kind of chasing this thing and they're not going to stop doing it when it ceases to be economically viable. Yep. And so, I, I sort of, in many respects, kind of, I think that was what sort of was confirmed for me in reading Secret Stars was that it was this idea of like, you know, Nick Drake never intended to be a pop star. And he wasn't really one until, you know, 25 years after he died or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, and so like it happens by accident almost. Like you can't engineer it, I guess. Yeah, it's sad in Nick Drake's case because he did want to be a star and his he was, you know, signed to a major record label. He was, you know, and and they were all telling him he was a genius. So I think he you know, what's super, super tragic about his story is that he kind of died of a broken heart. He was just broken hearted 
that no one bought his records. No one heard his music while he was alive. And, you know, he was just too shy and uncomfortable on stage to tour. And so he could never connect with his audience. He never played a live show in the United States. He, you know, barely played any in the, in the UK. There's almost no footage of the guy. In fact, I think there is no footage of him. That um, There's one little thing you can find on YouTube of him walking through a crowd where it's people are pretty sure it's him and it's him from behind. You can't even see his face. Wow. It's so, I, so haunting. But, but it's yeah, so a lot of strange think, to me yeah. that, that there is this person who leaves behind this legacy of, you know, for what is give or take four really incredible records that sound kind of just a little bit separate from so much other stuff being done at the time. I mean, I, yeah, you know, if, if this is one of these situations where like, if he survives and if he's a, you know, you don't want to say if he's a different person, but like, uh, if he survives and he makes it to America, like, is he kind of wrapped up into that sort of new folk movement? Is he part of the, the James Taylor, Jackson Brown, like Laurel Canyon thing? Like, do they, you know, do, like, is he sitting around and hanging out with, you know, Crosby, Stills and Nash or some shit? Yeah, look, that's the thing I would want to say to any musician out there listening. It's like Robert Pollard taught math to fourth graders for 12 years, could barely make ends meet, didn't start to make any money in music till he was 37 years old. The guy hung in there and got better and better and better. And then by the, you know, by the time he made it, he was ready, more than ready. And he had- And let's also clarify, my my dear friend, Joel Colonel Kuiper, who is the drummer in in the both of the bands that I am currently active in right now, is the one who who turned me into a Pollard disciple. Ah, nice. And one of the things that, that Joel told me that finally won me over is he said, hey, Maddie, do you know what Bobby's idea of success is? And I said, no. And he said, well, he told a reporter from Spin Magazine that it was because he had a deck on the front and the back of his house. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, and I was like, I like this guy. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. No real like sort of working class hero, but also just a guy who like nobody was going to, you know, Bob wasn't going to wait till someone let him make records. You know what I mean? He just did it. He just did it. And it's a, it's miraculous that he was ever discovered. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's just that great, you know, basement genius underground story, but like in Nick Drake's case, what's so tragic is, you know, he grew up in a wealthy family. He was brilliant. He went to Cambridge. He studied poetry. You know, he was a, kid who was, you know, kind of used to getting what he wanted. And so, you know, he gets a record deal when he's like 20 years old, everything's coming easily for him. And then right. suddenly success does not come easily. And he spirals into a depression and kills himself or accidentally overdoses, depending on, you know, who you want to believe or what you want to, what you want right. to think. But it's like, you know, a close friend of his from Cambridge was like, you know, if his, if one of his records had been successful and he had become a star, would he have still overdosed on antidepressants at the age of 26? I don't think so. You know, I, I think he, you know, that, you know, he still would have been a moody guy, but like he, he, he would have been, you know, that's, it's, it's, and, and that's a shame when you, if you're an artist, just do your art and keep doing it. And maybe people will discover it. Maybe they won't, maybe you'll be successful. Maybe you won't, you know, if you have to work two jobs on the side to do it, that's what you got to do, but you can't not do it if that's who you are. Yeah. I mean, I think if the compulsion calls, you know, hard enough and often enough and you got to do it, just do it and find a way to do it the best way that you can with whatever you have. I mean, 
Uh, I don't remember exactly what the Arthur Ashe quote is, but it's, you know, it's just start, start with where you are and what you have with what you can do or, you know, go from there. So if that means, if that means making a bedroom record, that's just you and an acoustic guitar and you're basically making your version of Nebraska. Yeah. uh, I would love to hear it. Yep. And, and look, obviously we live in an era now where you don't need a big budget to make a, you can make a pretty great sounding record in your bedroom now, you know, it's not bedroom pop is, is not what, what, not what it used to be. You know, it's not, it's, I mean, you can make records that sound a lot better than, you know, early guided by voices recordings, you know, uh, uh, you know, I mean, they deliberately, it became a sort of a choice at a certain point, that aesthetic, but it, it, you know, I wonder if he was starting out now with, you know, whether he would have used the technology or not used the technology, whether he would have chosen to sound, you know, live in a, you know, garagey kind of straight to four track. It almost seems like he would have just still done it. I mean, it's hard to, you know, sort of suppose, but it seems like he probably would have still just kind of done it all and dabbled and gone. I like doing it that way. I don't like how, you know, and sometimes I wonder if it's like, how does that feel on the day? you know, with him, uh, yeah. you know, like, cause he talks about feeling pretty stifled when they made those, you know, when they made those records for TVT and he was kind of, you know, quote unquote produced and he like chose to work with Okasic and, you know, yeah. that record, that record is, I think it's, it's great. I, I know yeah. a lot, I know a lot of purists hate it. Um, it's a record that I still am very fond of, but it's also, it's also one of the first records that really kind of hooked me. Yeah. yeah. And look, and he and Bob doesn't shit on that record at all. He loved working with Rick Ocasek. You know, Rick was one of his heroes, you know, kind of a hometown hero originally from Ohio. Right. And and, um, uh, you know, thought he was a great guy. They loved working together. Great experience, you, you know, and and the record just didn't sell as well as Bob hoped it would. And, and you know, there was a big fight over the song Hold on Hope and what version to release. And right. You know, he Bob almost broke out to that next level. And he, oh no, it wasn't Bob. It was Patterson Hood of Drive-By Truckers who said something really funny to me that I actually didn't put in the book and I wish I had, where he was just like, you know, I know I'm lucky to be as successful as I am. He said, but I just wish I was, you know, he said, I don't care about being, I don't need to be as big as Leonard Skinner or whatever. He said, I just wish I was as big as Wilco, like that I could have like a bus you know, like a big or two buses, you know, <laughs> like, you know, I just want to like, just, just one level up, you know, from, from oh. like, but then you wouldn't be in my book, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and that's, I mean, that's like the dream, you know, somebody, somebody once, once asked me when I was like, you have those conversations with your artist friends when you're in your twenties and they're like, okay, you could be anybody you could have any, you could have any celebrity's life. And I was like, without it, without thinking about it for a second, I was like, Oh, Tom Waits. Oh, and they were like, awesome. and they were like, what? And I'm like, I can do a Coppola movie when I want to. I can make a record when I want to. I can do nothing when I want to. I can go to the grocery store and 98% of the people there have no idea who I am. And I'm always going to get to be me. And anytime I show up, all people want is just the genuine version of myself. Like yeah. that seems like perfect. Yeah. He's a, he's a total hero of mine. He's one of those guys. I mean, just a complete iconoclast total songwriter, songwriter. And yet he also made it, you know, he, and, and he made it in part. I mean, he probably made half the money he's ever made in his life because of the Eagles cover of old 55 and Rod Stewart's cover of downtown train, especially, which was, you know, one of Rod Stewart's biggest hits. 
And, and, you know, most people don't even know those are Tom Waits songs, you know, right. and it's like, and, and it's just so cool because like, has Tom Waits ever had a gold album? I don't think so. You know, but I mean, maybe, maybe I, I don't, I don't think it would so. shock maybe. me if he did. He's never had a hit off one of his own records, but you know, no. other artists, you, you know, major artists have covered his songs. Oh and, yeah. And, and he's one of those quote unquote legacy artists who, you know, so when like, I don't know for the, for our younger viewers. There used to be a thing called Basic Cable, and there was a thing called VH1. And they had a show called and then a show called Storytellers, and they invited Tom Waits to do it. And this was like around the time when he had a little bit of a renaissance, and like the NPR crowd kind of ate him up because Mule Variations came out, incredible record, just an, and, and was widely lauded as one of the five or ten best records of the year, rightly so. And and it was one of those things where like he had a little bit of momentum again and was just kind of able to do his own thing and story. And VH1 was like, well, let's, and they did this kind of remarkable thing where he introduces seven or eight songs with a live band, tells the story behind them. I and can't then, believe I've never seen that. And That's then like, he just <laughs> disappears. And I've, and here's the thing Matt. I've never seen it again. I watched it when it was on. And then I think they reran it once and I saw a bit of it. I bet I'm it's sure, I'm sure it's out there. It's yeah. I remember he does old 55 he does at least one song, maybe two from Mule Variations, and then he does a couple of other kind of classics. It seems like maybe he does a piano has been drinking. Oh, um, yeah, I see if it's out there. I either that or I had some sort of wild fever dream and 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 I made the whole thing up. No, I don't know. I we'll see. You. I am I am looking that up. That that sounds incredible. I'm surprised he did that and incredible and really cool that he did that because that's that's unlike him actually. Yeah. And, and for whatever reason, whenever I think about that, I'm always like, it's, it's so weird that he was, because the other people that they had on that show were like kind of stars and they were sort of yeah. bands of the moment or bands that had been around for a long time who were a big deal bands like say the Eagles, or uh, I don't know if REM were ever on there, but that would have been a, a venue for a band like that. Sure. You know? sure. Um, and, and yet I, I kind of, wonder now in the in the age of the internet why there aren't more sort of curated shows like that where there's somebody who's got a studio that does a thing like that and and you know i i mean everybody's so you know sort of make up a shitty word here polymathic we all have to have our hands in so many different pies to sort of get by as creatives these days i'm kind of amazed somebody hasn't just said you know what we're going to carve out this corner of a studio and do this four days a month or whatever yeah, I have this theory and and a dream. It's it's maybe not that realistic, but maybe it is uh, of doing a Secret Stars docu series. Actually, where you have, you know, there are at least fifty artists I could come up with, like the ten in my book, who you could do a one hour episode, interviewing them, telling their story letting them play a couple songs, whatever it would be. If it's not a band that's still around, then obviously you could just, you know, if there's a music video, you could show it. You could, you know, basically little, you know, mini documentaries where yeah. there are artists that would not necessarily get the, the full two hour feature length documentary, but God, if you could do 51 hour episodes about like the, you know, the the best bands and songwriters that, that, that made it to a certain degree, um, <clears throat> But but, you know, never had a, a big hit or, you know, we're, we're never big on the radio, certainly never had a gold album. Uh, and I think um, having kind of, you know, having read the book and then kind of, you know, followed you a little bit on social media, like 
you and I are fairly locked in on maybe what the next 10 might look like based on <laughs> that tiny little bit of stocking slash research, research that I did. And the one that I think maybe I fell in love with the most where like, I really, I really kind of zoned in was I was like, nobody ever talks about how great the fruit bats are. Ah. No one ever talks about how amazing Eric Johnson is as a songwriter and a producer. And again, talk about a guy who's kind of slowly been evolving and just sort of ever, you know, chameleoning his way through a pretty wide jungle of, uh, you know, independent rock in the 21st century. I love, as, as you know, from my sub stack, uh, Matt Berenson's newsletter for music obsessives. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I, yeah, he is certainly one of the, one of the great secret stars of the 21st century. And, and I'll tell you a way more obscure one whose album I believe he produced and plays on that's coming out next month. This gives me an opportunity to, to, to plug it. And I'll tell you my, my connection here. Have you heard of a female singer songwriter named Joanna Samuels? No. Oh, wait till you hear her new record. You can hear there are three songs currently available for, you know, on, on streaming. Uh, God, I forget the name of the new album, but if you just look up Joanna Samuels, this is her, you know, se second album that I, you know, her, her last one actually got written up in magazines and things like that. She started playing with a lot of, you know, interesting contemporary artists of hers, met Eric Johnson. They started working together, touring together. They played this Carnegie Hall show that a lot of other artists, it was like 10 different artists played. Oh, okay. Um, and, and they've made this incredible record together. That's hers. It's she, you know, she's the, it's her album, but, uh, he, he plays on it and I think produces it. I think this is going to get a lot of attention. Um, it, you wow. know, it could be her, her big break or she could just become a, you know, yet, yet another secret star. Um, is, uh, is she from Chicago as well? No, she's from LA actually. Um, okay. I, my awareness of her. Uh, is through film. Uh, uh, her father is a line producer. I've worked on a couple of movies with. Oh, and wow. so I've been aware of her for a long time. And she's a great example of like, just keeps getting better and better. And she seems to have hit some kind of a critical mass. I mean, I just love the work she's doing now and her last record too. Um, and, and to the point where like, I'm, I'm not plugging it just because she's the daughter of a friend of mine. Like I believe in it. I'm going to, I'm going to write a newsletter about it when the album comes out. Cause I That's don't awesome. think, you know, yeah. I mean like, you know, and if it, and if I didn't believe in it, I, I wouldn't, I would never do, you know, uh, uh, when you're, when you're writing a Substack, you don't have to prostitute yourself. Nobody's right. I mean, you. no well, labels paying you to write about their artists. You write about artists you love, you know? And the audience that you're serving, whatever that is, whether that's 20 people or 20,000 people, the audience that you're serving when you write that way comes to you because they want your curatorial perspective. They want to go, okay, what, what is Matt interested in and why? And, and then filter that into why would I be interested into that? You know, and then you basically build a rapport with people just again, by being honest about what you engage with. Yep. Yep. I think people can tell, obviously there are so many people who write about music. And when I first embarked, you know, I'm a career film producer of over 20 years. And, and when I first embarked on writing the secret stars book, I didn't have any expectation. 
not that anyone would ever read it. I knew at least, you know, friends and family and, you know, whatever, maybe, you know, a hundred people would read it or something like that. But I didn't have any expectations for it, that it would get published or anything like that. Um, I just knew that it was something I wanted to do because I was passionate about it and I believed in the idea and I'm a big champion of underdogs, underdogs in general, but underdog artists and songwriters in particular in, in, in film and music, but God, especially music. And, you know, you people can tell, I think, and this is not to, you know, I don't mean to, I'm not like trashing professional music critics or anything, but I think it's much harder to be a professional music critic where there's a lot of things that compromise your ability to just write about what you want to write about and talk about what you want to talk about and love what you love and, and not have to, you know. Yeah, because it becomes more about uh, a coverage issue in what should we be writing about that our readers are interested in, not what can we give to our readers that they might fall in love with. Yeah, instead of leading them to the to to the to the artists you think are actually doing the best work out there, right. it's writing about you know artists who have a certain profile. You're pressured by your editor to like you know write think pieces about Taylor Swift or whatever. Who, by the way, I think is you know I, I'm not I'm not I don't know why I'm singling her out. Obviously, she's so massively successful that there's no there's no way her talent could be equal to that level of success. But there are there are many less talented, successful artists out, you know, out there. Yeah, yeah, I was just yeah. uh, I was just caught up in that phenomenon a bit. I went to uh, I went to the uh, Tiger game on Saturday afternoon in downtown Detroit, and at seven p.m. that night, her second of two nights at Ford Field, which is right next door. And so as we were leaving, the Swifties were descending upon downtown Detroit. It was quite it was quite an experience to walk around down there. It's I mean, it is a like I give I'll give her credit, man. The merch truck shows up at 9 a.m. day of the show. Wow. Yeah, and no, it's... it's. I mean, unreal. standing there on the second deck at, at Comerica Park looking over, and there are, I don't know, I mean, I'm several hundred people lined up to buy $40 T-shirts and $100 hoodies. Like, good yeah. on her, man. Yeah, look, growing up, I thought Madonna was good at self-promotion, but uh, Taylor Swift has taken it to another level. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we... <laughs> We should all be so wise as that young woman. Yep. Um, okay, here's a here's another one that I just got hipped to like over the weekend that you just wrote about. This this John, is it Shao? John Shaw? Oh, oh, oh yes. You know, it's funny, I don't know how you pronounce the name. It's S-H-O-U-G-H. John Show or Schaff, maybe? John Schaff would, would be another one. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm yeah. not sure though. Yeah. Um I was fascinated by that. Like that song is great. Is it? Oh my God. Look, uh, I had never heard of him until somebody on Insta, uh, a guy who, a, a GBV fan from, from Glasgow, um, just said, Hey, do you know about this engineer who works at Cro-Magnon studios and makes record, you know, the, the chief sound engineer at Cro-Magnon where, the breeders and guided by voices have recorded so many albums and Pollard and everything, you know, and he just, you know, post did this Insta post about this, you know, John Schaff record ultra Vega from 2000. I had never heard of it a month ago, you know, and, and I'm like, okay, anything this guy's recommending, we have similar tastes. So I'm going to check it out. And I just knew instantly, like I was five songs into the 20 songs on it, which is very, you know, Pollard like, yeah. and I was just like, 
every one of these is just, you know, there's like interesting lyrics. The guy's, you know, he's an inter he's he's a a, a good vocalist, reminds me a lot of David Kilgore from The Clean, you know, uh, interesting chord changes, interesting lyrics, just catchy, you know, short, uh, um, you know, reminds me of Tobin Sprout a little too, in terms of like his, and and it's just, you know, and now I'm like diving into the guy's whole catalog. The first two records in particular are really great. And I mean, he is just beyond obscure. You know, most people, you, you know, I tr I, when I was, figuring out what 10 artists I wanted to write about in my book, I deliberately avoided picking anyone who I thought was so obscure that it was like almost navel gazy. Like I didn't want people to think I'm trying to out obscure you, you know, they're right. Yeah. I mean, there's an artist I love as much as anyone in the book who was number 11 on my list. Like really like I only ruled them out because they're, they're so obscure, although maybe not to you, uh, a band called the Bevis Frond. I'm familiar. I'm not like, I'm not like a huge fan or anything, but I am familiar. Yeah. Pollard is a huge fan. We, we talked about this. So, so, so Nick Solomon of the Bevis Frond uh, has been making records since the late eighties, uh, like Pollard, um, at least 10 double albums and a triple, you know, and about another 10, 15, like single albums. It's kind of like, um, Richard Thompson meets indie rock, for lack of a better way of putting it. There's definitely an English folk kind of component to it, like Richard Thompson, but it's, but it's, he looks like Jay Mascus of Dinosaur Jr. He's like a, I mean, he's. Uh, he's this is, this is an Ohio band as well? No, no, this is a, a UK artist. He's well, a, this is UK. Uh, okay. My yeah, yeah. He's okay. a, an English guy. So Nick Solomon and the Bevis Frond, like if I write a Secret Stars 2, which if the book you know, the book is starting to sell pretty well. I mean, not great or anything, but if it hits a certain level, I'm going to do a Secret Stars too, and uh, Bevis Frond will be in it for sure. Um, oh, every artist awesome. I interviewed was like, are you writing about the Bevis Frond? And I was like, oh my God, they were like 11 on my list. So talk about a songwriter, songwriter, like all of the people I love, love him. Um, oh, wow. I gotta, I gotta check this out. Yeah. Um, Okay, so yeah, check out check out an album called North Circular, and another one called Vavona Burr. <laughs> what was that? Really. What was the second one? Uh, v a v o n a Vavona, and yeah. then second word Burr B u r r. Oh, like they're, both, they're okay. both available for streaming. Just incredible stuff. Um, so oh, New Riverhead, New Riverhead was the one that 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 um, artists discovered in the early nineties. Like Tanya Donnelly's a huge fan of. of okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, that's, I mean, not, not that there are chapters in the book that aren't great, but the Tanya Donnelly with the thing was super fascinating because that's an artist that I have not paid any attention to since maybe her first or second solo effort. Like I just kind of, you know, once the, basically once she wasn't on, once she wasn't doing 480 stuff anymore, it yeah. just sort of faded away. That's what happens when they're not getting the big promotion, right? right? You know, I tell the story in my book about how Belly was lucky uh, that they were chosen by the guy with ears at Warner Brothers to be the artist they promoted that month. Right. Like it could have been like it was a little bit luck of the draw and a little bit, you know, the guy who signed Prince to Warner Brothers was like, that song Feed the Trees a hit. We should get behind this record. And, you know. That's why Tanya Donnelly had one hit and one hit album. And, and it, and it, 
propelled her all the way to the, you know, the, the present and enabled her to make the kind of record she wanted to make, you know, but for the first few after that, she was under pressure to deliver hit albums. And I don't know why she didn't have more hit songs and hit albums, because I do think she's a pretty commercial songwriter. But well, I mean, we yeah. could have an entire podcast that could go on till the history of time. Yeah. I mean, I wrote I literally wrote a list of people and we'll never get to them all. But like, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm, like I'm looking at this list of people that we could talk about and they're all why aren't you huge? You know, yep. like we've you know, when when I reached out to you, we immediately talked about XTC. We've talked about Beulah. Why yep. is why is Sloan not the biggest band in North America in 1999? I don't understand. I, I have I, I wrote a, a substack about them. They're my favorite Canadian band of all time, if you don't count the band, which, you know, because the band has one American, you know, the drummer was American. Correct. Um, uh, uh, most, you know, if you count the band, then Sloan's my second favorite, you know, Canadian band of all time. And and they are big in Canada. I mean, they do have like at least Wilco level success in Canada, maybe even more, I think. But they no, they have the nothing. same. They have the same sort of pull here in the upper Midwest that they've had since the late 90s. And that is largely because the big alternative station in Detroit in the 90s and in the early 2000s was in Windsor, Ontario, which is right, ah. across, the, right across the river. And the way that Canadian broadcast laws work, you have to play X number of Canadian artists an hour. Oh, how funny. And Sloan was putting out lots of records and were oh. fairly popular. And so they were an easy, so they got a lot of extra play in places like Cleveland and Detroit and Buffalo and Milwaukee, where oh, they got good. a little, so, so they're, in fact, I'm going to go see them here uh, next week. Oh, that's amazing. They're so yeah. fun live. Oh and my God. Incredible live band. And so yeah, they're just they're like the Beatles of Canada, practically. I mean, it's a weird comparison. They do all they do all right songs. songs. Yeah. Yep. And um, and they all uh, they don't all change instruments. But uh, yeah. uh, Chris Murphy, the bass player, who is one of the best bass players. Around making records today and playing live shows is also one of the best drummers I've ever seen. Yeah, <laughs> the dude's just amazing. Like he's one of those people that like you would be friends with him when you were in high school, and you would just look over him and go, "Fuck you! Yeah. How is this yeah. so easy for you?" The rest and of also, us this guy's going to make it one day. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. he yeah he totally also has that like rock star kind of charisma and charm to him. Yeah. Um. Uh, talk to me a little bit about your your sort of love of of XTC and oh. where, that, where that comes from and when that happened for you. You know what? I can pinpoint it almost exactly. So I probably first heard an XTC album when my older brother, who's three years older than I am, brought home drums and wires from Tower Records on Sunset. Um, okay. I'm pretty sure that's where he would have gotten it at the time. And I just remember kind of like immediately going, ooh, you know, and I was really young. I mean, I probably would have been 11 or something at the time. Oh, wow. And, and uh, you know, but then I believe it was also my brother. We went to see that music documentary, Erg the Music War. Do you know, have you ever heard of this? Uh, so I've heard of it. I have never seen it, but it's legendary. And one of the things that's legendary about it is that it caught XTC when they were still touring. And they were at the time they were touring the Black Sea album, the one after Drums and Wires, which, as you know, 
And they played respectable street and generals and majors or something like that. And I was just like, holy mackerel. And, and like they were, so I was into them early. I mean, I was probably 12. I was 12 when Black Sea came out. Oh my so God. I mean, they're one of the first 10 bands I loved, which is, which is kind of amazing because it's not, and I'm not saying like, oh, you know, uh, I only listened to cool records. Like I was hugely into the clash. I was hugely into the jam. I was into, I, I did have bizarrely cool taste as a 12 year old, whereas normally it's just whatever records you hear first. It's partly because I had a cool older brother with good taste, right? I heard what he, and he was, you know, 15 when I was 12. So I was hearing that stuff partly through him. But I also, you know, I had the first Van Halen record, which I still have affection for because, because of, because, you know, and it's still, look, it's an incredible record and it's in, even though I maybe never play it now, it's an amazing debut album. I mean, it just, it just is, but anyway, and they were an LA band and, you know. And uh, uh, it's a, it, it's a cultural touchstone. Yeah. You know, it is a, there, there are records that are great and there are records that are important for the moment. And then there are records that are both of those things. Yeah. And yeah. those, and those records are the ones like, those are like thriller and 1984 and, I, I mean, I'm sort of spacing now, but you know, pick it like like a virgin is another one of those records sure. that I think where like yeah, there the are those there are those there are those records where everyone acknowledges it's really well done, even the people who want to hate on it, right? And yep. everybody knows three singles, yeah, you yeah, know? where they're just songs that are just perennial classics, yeah, and you're, yeah, and so yeah, I'm not, you know, I, I. It's funny, actually, because even though I might maybe haven't listened to the first Van Halen album front to back in a long, long time, um, I did recently send a clip to some, you know, this this uh, music group that we call the Bible study group online. We send each <laughs> other send each other like record recommendations and things like that. And we were talking about greatest guitarist of all time. And I just sent Eddie Van Halen doing the eruption solo, you know, live. Um, and it's just like it's orchestral. It's like, it's, it's almost like it's, 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 it's classical music almost. It's, it's and I'm not, I'm not a Van Halen fan. I didn't like the whole hair metal uh, sort of, sort of uh, hard glam rock thing that came like, that was not my thing. Yep. But there was no question that that shit was just undeniably awesome. Right. Yeah. And I'm the asshole who even at like 13 is like, do you guys not realize these are Kinks songs and the Kinks versions are way better? Like <laughs> I was that asshole in eighth grade, right? I love that. Um, you know, but you watch that and, and to me, that is the, all of the guitar heroes that all of my friends who were into that shit loved. Like I could see that sort of mastery of technique, but I could also hear the musicality. Whereas with some of those other dudes, whether that was like somebody like Satriani or Ingve Malmsteen, like it was, it just felt like math, you know, it just felt like I can, I'm physically capable of doing this. You know, it was like, it was like watching somebody run real fast. Like, yeah, it's impressive, but I don't, I don't need to hang out. (laughs) You know, with, with Eddie, it was like, holy shit, this is like, as you said, it's orchestral and it's one person. Yeah. And it felt like he was transforming the, the language almost in a new way. And that's when shit gets really exciting as much yeah. as I, as much as I get shit from all my friends for not loving Zeppelin. Yeah. It's, it's hard not to go, wow, that whole thing created a whole wave of new stuff. And largely that came out of Jimmy page being interested in this one thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it's, it's, uh, 
Yeah, it's interesting. I am always, you know, people who don't know me when I'm talking about the book could easily think, oh, you're a music snob that only likes artists that don't make it. And it's like, that is real. In my case, it's, it's really not true. Like I'm a huge Beatles, Who, Zeppelin, R.E.M., you know, a lot of the biggest bands of all time are among my favorites. Prince, I'm a huge Prince fan. It's like you can't really be, you know, a music snob if you like artists who sold 100 million records. There are also a lot of bands that have sold 100 million records that I don't like. But um, but I like a lot of them that that, that did. Uh, so, so, you know, for me, it's really just about talent and do I connect with it? It starts first and foremost with like, do I love it? And then, and then I examine, okay, like, why do I love it? Is it like this, that, or the other thing? Is it, is, is what they're doing really new, like Steely Dan and Talking Heads who are just so singular, they don't sound like anyone else. I love bands like that, that are really rare where they actually, you know, just like, you can't even compare them to anything else. They're just their own. Thing. Regardless of what I, I sort of the, the the rubric I've often used is if I hear it in the wild, will I know that it's them without knowing it's them? Yeah. So uh, the other band that springs to mind immediately for me like that is Devo. Oh, yeah. Good. Right. One. Like like yeah. if I'm if I'm out somewhere, I mean, yes, you're probably going to hear Whip It or their cover of Satisfaction. But if you hear something else and you don't necessarily recognize it, like I actually was out somewhere the other day. I was at this little farmer's market we have. And they have Sirius XM and Freedom of Choice was on while I was getting my my coffee. And uh, before, like, as you know, you're walking through a crowded store and people are talking and shit. And I'm like, that's Devo. And then <laughs> I heard and then I heard him go Freedom of Choice. Yeah, like, yeah. there it is. Yeah. But like just in the ether, you can go Mother's Ball is up there somewhere. So distinctive. And there's just very few bands that fall into that category. It's a fun fun list to make, but it's just, you know, there just aren't that many like singular bands, you know? Um, and especially um, often if you are singular, you don't make it because you, do, you know, radio doesn't get you and doesn't really know what to do with you. And, you know, back in the day anyway. Or you sometimes know. your singularity kind of becomes so like kind of up your own asshole. <laughs> That it's like you're you're kind of doubling down on it in a way to go, hey, don't forget about me. Like, you know, yeah. I don't I don't want I guess I don't want like a caricature. A, right? a band that I like that falls into that category and is very singular and highly influential. Lots of, you know, Pavement was hugely influenced by them. And, you know, is uh, uh, The Fall, Marky Smith. Oh, yeah. You know, that's a guy who just like, the, you know, if a fall song comes on, I know it's the fall or or someone trying to imitate the fall. But it's like, how many records could that guy make that that's just like where he's just doing that same thing over and over again? Eventually, he figured out if he got different musicians behind him, he could make it. He could do a little bit of a variation on the thing, you know, but yeah. as soon as he starts doing his sing, speak, snarky, you know, I was walking down the street. It's such a weird I've never been a fan. I do like the Curious Orange record just because it's weird enough that it's like this goofy little jangly mess, uh, you know, but it's like, I don't want to listen to, I never listen to both sides of it in the same sitting. Yeah, it, it's it's hard to listen to a lot of fall yeah. consecutively. I'll, I'll give you that. I love that you know the Curious Orange record, though. I actually really love, I love that one. Yeah. Another band, um, 
another band that kind of reminds me of what we're talking about a little bit and it they sort of like punch down on a singular style is uh i am just an enormous david berman fan oh yes just in a uh, like that that silver juice stuff is great but that purple mountains record heartbreaking just broke my heart wide open in so many ways yep and that would have happened regardless of the fact that he died in the wake of its release well it was a suicide note i mean you realize after he killed himself like oh he was writing a suicide letter yeah um yeah to to leave the phrase uh drinking margaritas at the mall in your suicide note is a i as a songwriter like i just it's a that's a hat tip man that 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 guy's lyrical genius and his ability to turn that into the most simple hook is just oh he amazing he was on my i would say semi short list for sure i did a list of about 30 or 40 artists for for my book and silver jews were on there and this was before oh no i guess the purple mountains would have come out by then maybe i i think i think it was before i had embarked on the book and I, I went with, I, I realized I couldn't write about Elliot Smith and him in the same, just because I didn't want, like, it was like with Nick Drake and Elliot Smith and him, I've got like three. It was too much the of book. the same it was thing. Too, yeah. too much, de- you know, depressed, uh, you know, but yeah. boy, I mean, he, yeah, he'd maybe be in Secret Stars too. I, I'm such a fan of American Water and that Purple Mountains uh. record and all, all that stuff. I had the first Silver Jews record because Stephen Malcolmus is all over it and even co-writes some of the stuff. And I'm such a big Pavement and Malcolmus fan. And he and Berman obviously were good friends. Uh, and I came to it through the palace, Will Oldham angle. Through, um, through which? Through uh, Will Oldham. Oh, Will Oldham and, and, and Palace. And, yeah, 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 and the palace stuff. So um, I came through it that way because uh, I had gotten really into the palace brother stuff and then into the Bonnie Prince stuff Yep, and was a huge fan of, of uh, smog of that early stuff that's on drag city. And that was all kind of coming out at the same time. And, um, and then that just kind of, you know, by the late nineties, that kind of wrote Berman into that. And it was just, you know, and I like for the first two records, didn't even really realize there was a connection to pavement. Like I didn't yeah. really read the liner notes or anything. I just kind of went, and then somebody was like, Oh yeah. I was like, why is he touring with Pavement? And they were like, well, he's all, they're all over those first two records. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's, uh, you know, and, and he's another guy who I think posthumously is going to catch on more. There are too many people. Anyone I recommend American Water to is like, this is fantastic. This guy's an unbelievable writer. I mean, just for, I mean, he's a top tier lyricist, that guy. Yes. I mean, just yes. a, really an unbelievable writer. And and the songs, you know, it, it's not like they're, you know, they're difficult. You know, he's not, he just, you know, I, I think when you call your band Silver Jews, that's going to, it's going to, you know, it's just a tough, and I'm Jewish. I just, you know, it's did you, a strange uh, did you see the, your, Did you see the, I, I don't know if I wouldn't call it a documentary. I mean, I guess it is it's like an hour long. And I think it's just called Silver Jew. And it's, no. a, and it's about them. It's about him and his wife at the time and their mm. band touring Israel. No kidding. Yeah. Oh it's God. really fascinating. And he plays these, like he plays a couple of like bigger shows, but he also does a couple of like sort of glorified house concerts where they like set up with like a tent or in like a portico with sheet metal. Uh, they're very kind of like slapdash venues. It's wow. a really interesting kind of look at, uh, him as a person, as a writer, them as a band, and then, you know, his sort of his personal history with his faith and his upbringing. 
There's really no simple. way I'm not tracking that down and the Tom Waits uh, VH1 story. Yeah, it's super, gotta... yeah, it's super cool. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we've, we've been talking about music forever and we could do this and I hope can do this <laughs> again. I would how, love to. how does one become a film producer? You like how I did that? How I ended that interview on the cliffhanger with the, so what does it take? Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, super cloying and uh, to be continued and very uh, 80s two-part sitcom but you're going to have to come back next time for my uh, part two conversation with my new friend, uh, Matt Berenson. Thank you again to Matt for being here. Um, I feel like I have found a, a real kindred spirit a lost soulmate, if you will. Uh, this was so much fun to have this conversation. I'm really excited for you guys to hear the other half of it. And I'm excited to have more conversations like this with Matt. Um, speaking of, of conversations, of uh, of things that happen with uh, people named Matt, you can have a conversation with me. You can get a hold of me at speakpipe.com slash what am I making? And uh, you can leave me a voicemail. And I'm going to play one of those for you right now from my friend Aaron the Farmer out in Washington, who uh, Aaron and I have talked a lot uh, in the past about Spotify and farming and the way rates of pay are sort of kept deliberately low in both of those industries and uh, some of the similarities that exist that might not be obvious to some people who don't participate in them. And I've learned a lot in talking to Aaron. And uh, so I'm going to leave you with uh, with his lovely message of support and uh, possible conversation here. And I'm going to encourage you to do the same. Thank you again for being here. Thanks for being a supporter, a subscriber, a friend. Make sure you're liking, rating, reviewing the pod. Sign up for a paid subscription today. We got 30 people. Let's get to 40 before I see you again in a week's time. Can we do that? Can you get me 10 more? Please. I'll leave you with my friend Aaron the Farmer. Thank you again to Matt Berenson. Thank you to you. I love all of you very much, my dear, dear friends. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Hey, Matty C. This is Aaron from the Stand Up Hangout. Hey, I just got done listening to your latest interview with uh, Joe Pernice. Uh, it was good stuff, good stuff. Um, really love what you're di- doing. Um, and yeah, I would love to chat about Spotify, about Walmart, about the whole economic system that exploits every aspect of our human nature. Um, how people in the music industry affected the same way as people of farmers like me. Um, yeah, um, whenever it works for me. Um, but have a good day, man. Production of Medicine and his ADHD.